Well, good morning once again, everyone. I want to apologize like I did first service. I got this cough thing going, and, and I'm a little bit, I thought it was better Thursday, Friday. I thought, I'm doing pretty good. Then Saturday I woke up, and I'm thinking, what's going on with my voice? And so I may cough in this little microphone there, so um, I apologize ahead of time. Deal with it. No, I'm just, just kidding. Just kidding. If you have your Bibles, we are in the book of Philippians chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 12 through 18 this morning. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 18. Apostle Paul writing in verse 12, he says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in both you, in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Do all things without complaining and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world holding fast the word of life, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Yes, and if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. For the same reason you also be glad and rejoice with me. The title of my study this morning is God's Workout Plan. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather this morning to be in this place, Lord, where... We can hold your word on our laps, Lord, and we know that your desire is to speak through your word to our hearts. And so, Lord, we thank you for this time. We thank you ahead of time for the work that you're going to do here this morning in our lives. And we pray that your blessing would be upon it, your anointing would be upon it. Lord, that we would be attentive to all that you have for us today. And we ask your blessing of our time of communion, Lord, as we close out the service this morning. But more importantly, Lord, we pray if there's anyone here that is yet to come into a saving knowledge of your Son, Jesus Christ, Lord, that they would come to know Him and love Him as so many of us do this morning. So we ask your blessing upon this time. We commit it to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. To say that our nation is caught up in this physical fitness craze, I think, is an understatement. I mean, it really has. Physical fitness has become a billion-dollar industry in the United States, and it continues to grow. I mean, all you got to do late at night, flip on those channels or early in the morning and you have those shows, the latest infomercial featuring the latest fitness product on the market. You can buy the thigh master. I mean, it's going to do this work. How about the, the uh, abdominizer or the uh, gut be gone? All these tools, you know, and, and most of these infomercials, you know, they'll say, but wait, there's more. For one time only, if you order right now, you'll get this, you know, Latest training video on abs of steel or buns of steel. It was Ellen DeGeneres who said, I really don't think I need buns of steel. I'd be happy with buns of cinnamon. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I can agree with that. I, I read of this latest gimmick now. Maybe you've seen this. This is from a Get Fit guy who says, now you can lose weight by hooking up these electrodes to your stomach and send a you know, current of electricity through your muscles in your stomach and voila. As you sit there being shocked, you're going to lose weight. <laughs> I don't think so. No thanks. <laughs> but here's the problem with all these gimmicks. It does you no good unless you use them. See, the fact of the matter is, 
we do need some sort of exercise in our life. It's not just a once in a while thing. And that doesn't mean we like it. I hate it. But I know that it's absolutely necessary for me to keep this body in the best shape that I can for as long as I can. Like the Bible tells us in 1 Timothy 4 verse 8, physical training is good, but training for godliness is much better, promising benefits in this life and in the life to come. Well, here in chapter 2, verses 12 to 18, the Apostle Paul is concerned with the church in Philippi, specifically in the fact that as their spiritual trainer, so to speak, he's concerned that if he can't make it back to continue to minister to them, he doesn't want them to stop exercising, so to speak. He wants them to, to stay in shape spiritually. That's why in verse 12 he says, Therefore, my beloved as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now, much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. See, Paul had a very special bond with these believers in Philippi. And, and, and these believers, they loved Paul as well. And they were in great agony over the fact that their beloved leader is in prison and couldn't be with them, possibly you know, was going to be put to death because they loved Paul. So Paul is saying, listen, I don't know what's going to happen to me. Uh, either way, I don't know if I'm going to release, if I'm going to go home to be with the Lord. But this is what I do know. I don't want you to lower your guard spiritually. I don't want you to get into some spiritual stump and not continue to move on because I'm not there with you. See, this, this, we see this in many people today. They'll be basically interested in the things of the Spirit when they're around committed Christians, when they're hanging out with believers. But when they're not around believers... Man, they're really quick to be pulled back into the world and into the things of the world. And that's because they don't have their own foundation in the Lord for themselves. Instead, their walk with the Lord has been contingent upon someone else's walk with the Lord. A classic example of this is, is Abraham and his nephew Lot. Remember, Abraham had strong faith, walked closely with his Lord. And, and his nephew Lot was sort of a spiritual freeloader, so to speak. Abraham walked with God, you might say, but Lot walked with Abraham. See, Lot was sort of this wishy-washy type of individual when he was around Abraham, though he was strong in the faith, you know, interested in the things of God. But when he got away from Uncle Abe, I mean, he was drawn into the ways of the world. Lot's case, specifically, I mean, he was drawn into the wicked place known as Sodom. But the problem was, he didn't have or maintain his own relationship with God. This is also illustrated with the children of Israel who turned away to full-blown idolatry. Remember, Moses was their leader and, and, and led them from bondage, the bondage of Egypt towards the promised land. And, and they're on the way to the promised land. And, and remember, Moses was instructed by God to, to go up to the Mount Sinai, receive the Ten Commandments. Well, while Moses is gone, the people immediately became antsy. And they got tired of waiting, and, and so they go to Aaron, who they knew Moses had left in charge while he was gone, and said, listen, we don't know what happened to, to Moses. Uh, he, I know we brought us out of Egypt, but, but listen, he's gone, so we want you to fashion uh, for us a golden calf that we might worship it. And what's hard to believe, but true, in a relatively short amount of time, after Moses had been gone, he comes back down the mountain after receiving the Ten Commandments, which ironically says, you should not have no graven image before me, no other gods before me. And here are these Israelites. They're, they're naked before this golden calf, singing and worshiping this thing. How quickly they fell. You say, well, how could they fall so fast? Well, I suggest to you that Moses was their first idol, and the golden calf 
was their second idol. Their eyes were, were on Moses. When Moses was around, they walked with God, but as soon as Moses left, they, they placed their faith in something else. And we can all do that. We can make an idol out of a man or a woman that the Lord uses in life, where our entire walks with God is contingent upon their, their presence. And, and that's a big mistake. Or even in the home, a Christian wife may tell her husband she wants him to, to go to church, and, and he may go reluctantly, and he agrees. Or maybe your kids, you know, they'll read their Bibles and pray because their parents lead that, led them in that. Or, or maybe you have a situation where a huge crowd is gathered to hear this dynamic you know, speaker or pastor. But here's the problem. If that Christian wife loses interest in spiritual things, then the husband is gone too. Once the kids are outside of the home, outside of the influence from their parents, they're not going to be interested in the things of God. Or if something happens to that pastor or that leader and he leaves the church, that congregation will immediately begin to fall apart. That's what happens when you put your faith in people. And that's not the way God wants to do it. He wants you to have your foundation in Him. He wants that, you to have that personal relationship with Him. Because people are going to let you down. People are going to disappoint you. I'm going to let you down. And, and if I haven't, it's probably because you're new to the church. you know. And so, just give me some time. Because I'm human just like you are. But sometimes we'll look at, at people that God works through and we'll say, oh, they're, they're so great. They could do no wrong. Everything they say and do is just so wonderful. That's not true. We all have that sin nature and you're going to see human traits in every individual and we're not to make idols of people. So Paul is saying here, hey, if I'm there, walk with God. If I'm not there, walk with God. In other words, don't look at, at me. You know, I want you to stand on your own two feet spiritually with or without me. Now, how are they to do, to, to do that? Well, by following God's workout plan. And those are our three points this morning. Uh, what is God's workout plan? Three I wills, if you're taking notes. Number one, I will do my part. Number two, I will depend on God. And number three, I will be different from the world. Number one, I will do my part. Look at verse 12 again. Paul says, As you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, that verse has been often misunderstood. Some have suggested that Paul is saying that, that suggesting we, sh- we could work for our salvation. You can earn your salvation. That somehow through our own effort, human effort, we could bring salvation about as though it was some sort of ongoing process that no one can be sure of. Absolutely not true. The Bible teaches that we can know that we know that we know that we are truly saved. 1 John 5, 11 through 13 says this, and this is what God has testified. He has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. Whoever has a Son has life. Whoever does not have God's Son does not have life. I have written this to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. You may know. See, salvation is not a work that you can do. It's a done deal. There's nothing you can do to earn it, or merit it, or work for it. Ephesians 2, verse 8 and 9, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and not of, not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. I like Titus 3, 5, that says, It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. So clearly when Paul is saying, Work out your own salvation, he's not saying work for your salvation. They're already saved. He's writing to Christians. In other words, it's a work out, not a work in. You know, physically speaking, we've been given 
these bodies, we, we, they, they have muscles. I mean, they're born with muscles. And you can choose not to exercise those muscles, and what will happen is atrophy will set in. Now, the muscles are still there, but they're weak, and physically you can't really do anything with them because they're so weak. No, it takes exercise. It takes working out. Again, the muscles are there, but you need to, you need to use them to stay in shape. Same comparison. Salvation is there. Now we need to work out to maintain that spiritual strength. In fact, that word work out, the phrase work out means to carry it to the goal to fully complete it. Not earn it, but to carry it to, to, to the goal and fully complete it. In fact, in the original language, it, it can be translated to work a mine. Or to, you know, to work in a mine. It would be an expression that was used in Paul's day to describe those who worked in mines. You know, they, they were mining out what the Creator had placed in there. Working out what God has already worked in. Now, many of you know that I, I you know, was born and raised in Southern California, and I thank you for not holding that against me. Um, but California is known as the Golden State. Why? Because of the, the famous gold rush between 1848 and 1855. Understand, the gold wasn't just sitting in big old clumps of rocks and on the ground. People always go to California, oh, look, there's gold there, there's gold there, pick, oh, this is great. No, they had to, to mine it. They had to dig for it. And they would spend a lot of time searching and digging and looking for gold. That's the idea here. We're to be doing our part, working out what God has already worked and discovering all that God has placed in our lives. Let me assure you, if you're a Christian, you've already been given the mother load. Let me tell you, I mean, the blessings of Christ has come into your life the day that you placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. God has saved you. He's forgiven you. He's promised you eternity in heaven. You hit it big time. But there's more, as those late night infomercials say. Second Peter 1-3 tells us that God, through His divine power, has given to us all things that pertain to life and the godliness. And then in verse 4 of Second Peter 1, he says, He's been given us exceedingly great and precious promises. Now, he doesn't say that for us to sit back and go, Man, that's great. Look at all I got. And this is wonderful. You know? No. You know, he, 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 there's more, he says. You need to look at this. In verse 5 of 1 Peter 1, 3, he says, We've been given these for this very reason. He says, Giving all diligence, add to faith, virtue, to virtue, knowledge, to knowledge, self-control, to self-control, perseverance, to perseverance, godliness. In other words, what Peter is saying there, First Peter says, We have so much more to our salvation than the fact that God saved you and forgiven you and promised you heaven. You have this, this plethora of great resources. Now go out and mine them. Dig for that gold of virtue. Dig for that gold of knowledge. Dig for that gold of, of learning self-control, of perseverance, of godliness. Realize the full potential of all that you are and all that you have in Christ Jesus. See, God has done so much for us. Uh, now we have to do our part. Get that workout going. Jump ahead with me in your Bible to Philippians 3, verse 10. Just going to read one verse there. And I'm going to read it from the Amplified Version. Paul there shares with us how we're to apply this to our own lives in recognition of all that God has done for us, realizing He's put the mother load into our account, so to speak. He says in Philippians 3, verse 10, again from the Amplified Translation, My determined purpose is that I may know Him, that I may progressively, be, progressively become more deeply and intimately acquainted with Him, perceiving and recognizing and understanding the wonders of His person more strongly and more clearly. Do you hear what Paul is saying there? Paul is saying, here is my purpose in life. My purpose is to know Him. But you go, wait a minute. Paul already does. 
Now, but he goes on, he says, that I may become more deeply and intimately acquainted with him, perceiving and recognizing and understanding the wonders of his person more strongly and more clearly. Now, I've been married to my wife for over 37 years, be 38 years in September, and, and we've known each other for about 44 years, basically since we were 12 and 13 years old. Now, when we first got married, I thought I knew everything about her. But after 37 years of marriage... Five kids later, I know her so much better. <laughs> and, so much, and it's a good thing, not a bad thing, you know. I mean, I never knew when we first got married that she was going to be such a great mom to, to, to my children, or how she would prepare those amazing meals for our family, or how much she truly loves God and loves His Word. I've seen it over all the years that I've known her. I know her so much better. That's what Paul is saying here. I want to spend my entire life, however long I have left, getting to know him and growing into my appreciation of who he is and what he has done on my behalf. That's what Paul is saying to this church there. I want you to do the same thing. That means being in God's Word, meditating on it day and night. It means talking to God, spending time with God in prayer. It means getting to know God better through the lives of the people that he's placed around you and fellowship with. It means serving him by serving others. That's carrying to the goal your own salvation. That's working out. The idea is you don't just say, oh Lord, thanks for saving me and, and go on your merry way. No, this salvation is working in your life and affecting everything you do. Now let me add one more thing in verse 12. Paul says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now this fear and trembling, is, you know, it's not like those little chihuahua dogs. You know, when you pick them up, they're just, what's with those dogs? You know, they, just, they, they shake, always shaking. Are they just constantly terrified or something? I've seen them before. They're just shaking and shaking, probably thinking everyone's out to get them. Maybe they drink coffee. I, I don't know, you know. Give them decaf. That's not the fear and the trembling that Paul is talking about here. The fear and the trembling that Paul is speaking of is, is a fear. It's a, it's a holy reverence for a holy God. At the same time, a recognition of my own inability and weakness. In other words, I, I fear displeasing God and I don't trust myself. I fear displeasing God and I don't trust myself. I fear God to trust myself. On my own, I can't work out my own salvation. Neither can you, but here's the good news. It's the second of the I wills in our spiritual workout. It's our second point. Number two, I will depend on God. Look at verse 13. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for His good pleasure. See, it's not you doing it. It's God. So all you need to do is depend on Him. It's God who works in you both to will and to do of His good pleasure. Or literally, God is at work in you. Mind you the story about a farmer who was once visited by his pastor. As a, far, as a pastor looked over the farm for the first time, he said, John, this is a great farm that you and God have. Thank you, said John. But you should have seen it when God had it all by himself. The, the, the farmer meant no disrespect. He was just acknowledging that it's just the way God works. He works through us. He empowers us. He, he will not do for us what we need to be doing for ourselves. But as we rely on him and depend on him, we can accomplish great things. There was Kenneth Wiest who accurately translates this verse. He says... For God is the one who is constantly putting forth His power in you. I like that. 
Paul put it this way in Ephesians 3.20, to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. In other words, it's God that's going to help me do do this. It's God himself that's going to give me the desire for holy things. It's God himself that's going to give me the, the hunger for his word, the desire to know him better. I mean, I hope that the reason you're here today is because you have a hunger for God and for his word. I hope the reason that you're here today is because you love the Lord and you want to worship Him. But I want you to know that's a God-given desire. He's placed that in your heart for holy things. And you're just being obedient to the Lord for being here and listening to Him. See, He is working in you both to will and to do of His good pleasure. Again, that means He's going to give you the power and the strength and the ability to live for Him, to live the Christian life. Not doing it on your own strength. You're admitting that, that, that you're weak. But you're depending on, relying on, clinging to his strength. We looked at this last week as we closed. It was a, not imitation, but impartation. As we depend on him, he imparts uh, his Holy Spirit in our lives to empower us to accomplish all that he has in store for us. The result, I mean, we're going to be different. And that, that's our third, I will. Number three, our third point, I will be different from the world. Look at verses 14 and 15. Paul says, do all things without complaining and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless, children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Paul is saying, in in staying disciplined, you need to do your part. You need to depend on God. But more importantly, you need to not get caught up in the things of the world, and the things that the world are caught up in today. And he lists a couple of things. He says, complaining and disputing. Man, don't we see so much complaining going on in the world today and, and disputing back and forth? Heard of a man who decided to join a monastery and became a, a monk. He had to take a vow of silence. At the end of each year, he was allowed to appear before the head priest and say only two words. So after being silent for a whole year, he came before the head priest and he said, and the head priest said, what would you like to say? He said, bed's hard. Well, another year went by, and, and he comes back a whole year later. The head priest says, what would you like to say? Food's cold. Another year goes by. He appears before the priest. He says, what do you want to say? I quit. <laughs> and the priest said, it's no wonder all you've done is complain since you've got here. <laughs> I like the old King James Version. It says, do all things without murmurings and disputings. Not talking about, you know, loud, boisterous complaining. It's speaking of this low tone, this discontented muttering. It's from the Greek word which means to mutter or to grumble. It's a description of a person who's always griping, always dissatisfied, always stirring up other people. You're just mumbling something and you're not happy, you know, about it and you're not happy with. You know, murmuring, it's one of those words that sound Sounds like it's, it, it, like it's meaning, you know? Words like, like hiss and buzz and, 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 and hum, you know? Murmuring is one of those. Now, I think of Popeye. He was a murmurer, you know? Old Popeye, you know, get the cartoons, he'd get around Brutus, that Brutus, you know? There's a lot of people that are like that. They're constantly dissatisfied. Something is always bugging them. Something is always irritating them. It's too hot. It's too cold. I don't like this. I don't like that. This bugs me. That bugs me. That's murmuring. 
Paul says, uh, not only that, there's disputings. That really is just an outgrowth from the person who's always complaining or murmuring. It's the idea that a person becomes so critical that they become contentious. They just can't let things go. They're always looking at people and they're always judging their motives and they're thinking that the motives are impure. Never mind that the Bible says love believes the best. They never do. And for them, it's not enough to just to keep it to themselves. They have to go and they have to call other people up and say, well, what do you think about this? Did you know that? Have you heard this? I can't believe they did that. And they want to stir up this in other people and that same attitude of murmuring and complaining. Do you know people like that? It's almost like they, they like to argue. They enjoy it. They've got to argue about everything. Always something they've got to bicker about. They've always got some war with someone, you know. Oh, this person, they really upset me. And, 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 and man, you know, and they want to talk about it. And you know how this person has wronged them. And, and it's sort of their cause of life. Now, they may get over it eventually, but then they're going to move on to someone else. It starts all over again. If you have this, this person, oh, yeah, and it's bickering and fighting and arguing. God says, man, that's wrong. Don't let that happen to you. That's the opposite of what a child of God should be like. That's what the world does. That's the way the world behaves. But God wants us to differ than the world. Again, in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul writes, love believes the best of every person. Not the worst of every person. So then you say, since, since the Bible tells me love believes the best, then I'm going to believe the best of that person. Now their actions may be shouting something else, and you may wonder, but it doesn't matter. You're still to believe the best. Why? Because you can't see that person's heart. You don't know what's going on on in the inside. I mean, what a difference it would make if we would all just start blessing others instead of blasting others. That's what we need to work in and work out of our lives. You know, the desire that we all have to murmur and complain needs to go. And in its place, needs that we need to bless people and pray for people. And as we looked at last week, esteem others better than ourselves. Then Paul adds in verse 15 that we're to be blameless and harmless as well. Blameless there speaks of moral integrity manifesting itself externally. Let me repeat that. To be blameless speaks of moral integrity showing itself externally. What's in your heart comes out. Now, hopefully it'll match, but sometimes it doesn't. But I read Ken Hughes. He, he summarized his result of a survey from a book called The Day America Told the Truth. And his, he says this, and I quote, Only 13% of Americans see all Ten Commandments as binding on us today. 91% lie regularly at home and at work. In answer to the question, whom have you regularly lied to? The statistics include 86% to parents and 75% to friends. He goes on. Most workers admit to goofing off for an average of seven hours, almost one whole day a week, and half admit that they regularly call in sick when they are perfectly well. And then the survey also posed this question, what are you willing to do for $10 million? The answer, 25% would abandon their families, 23% would become a prostitute for a week, and 7% would kill a stranger. I mean, think of that. In a gathering of 100 Americans, there are seven who would consider killing you for $10 million. In 1,000, there would be 70 people. That's what's inside people's hearts. Hearts are deceitfully wicked. But we're to be different. God has given us a new heart. We're to be different than the world. We're to be blameless. Again, to be blameless speaks of moral integrity showing itself externally. 
what you are on the inside showing itself on the outside. But then Paul mentions harmless. Now that doesn't just mean I won't harm people, though it includes that. So much more than that. A better way of translating that would be uh, of being harmless would be being innocent, unmixed, simple, pure. Really, the, the best translation for this is to be inexperienced in evil. Being naive to evil. You know, not wanting to know about evil or be, have anything to do with it. So just as the word blameless was a description of moral integrity showing itself externally, harmless is a description of moral integrity showing itself internally. What's going on in the inside of your heart? See, I might say that I can be proud of the fact that I don't go and I don't do certain things. You know, I don't drink. I don't chew. I don't hang around girls that do. You know, I don't go out and I don't murder someone. I don't commit adultery, you know. But on the other hand, I might be filled with hatred in my heart or lust, which according to Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, it's just as bad. See, Paul is saying, live like who you truly are, verse 15, children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Live as children of God. Live without fault. Without fault really is a summary of the other two I mentioned. It means that you have no blemish, no speck, or indication of disease. Now you go, well, come on, Tom, I mean, how can I live up to those standards? How can any person live like that? Go back to, to, to point number two. It's God that works in you both to will and to do of His good pleasure. It's, it's depending on Him. And then as a result of living that way, we are going to shine as lights in this perverse world. Man, we are living in a twisted world right now. It's dark. It's a dark world, in case you haven't noticed. I mean, it's getting darker and darker each day. It, it, it's happening expeditionally. It, it, it's, it's horrible. Now, that tells me two things. They're not bad things. And, uh, number one, it's always darkest before the dawn. So the darker it gets, man, the closer we are to Jesus Christ coming back. And number two, that also tells me that if we live as Paul encourages us to live, blameless and harmless children of God without fault, then our lives are going to shine like the brightest star in this dark world until Jesus returns. In other words, you're going to stand out. You're going to make a difference. You know, we talk about Christians making a difference in the world. That's what this is about. Why? Because verse 16 says you're holding fast to the word of life. That means you're holding on to God's word for dear life. And you're meditating on it. You're, you're, you're obeying it. You're listening to this teaching from it. You're making it a priority in your life. You're digging in. You're applying it to your life. Why? Because the most important thing in your life is getting to know God better through His Word and then making Him known. See, as a result of that, you're living for the glory of God. You're not murmuring. You're not complaining. You're not being a fault finder. You're living blameless and faultless. You know what? You're becoming stronger in the Lord. You've built up some muscles, haven't you? Now you can go to the gym. Ah, you know, I'm Arnold. I'm going to pump you up. Man, you've got some muscles going now. You're strong. You've had your spiritual workout. But let's take it a step further. You're just not living this way. You're telling people why you do the things that you're doing. You see, just like an athlete in trading, when someone comes up and they see him, man, what are you training for? You tell them, oh, this, this triathlon or this thing that I'm going doing it in the same way god wants us to tell people why we do what we do we do what we do because of what jesus did for us 
You know, there are a lot of Christians out there that will live the life, and God bless each and every one of them, but they don't speak up for their faith. They don't speak out for their faith. They don't say a word. Then there are those that speak up for the faith, but they won't live the life. In that situation, I wish they would just keep quiet. How we need to live it out and to speak it out. So when people come up to you and say, man, I don't get it. Man, how, I mean, how, how have you managed to have a happy marriage? I mean, how long have you been married? 25, 30 years, 40 years, 10 years, 5 years? You've been married 5 years anymore. That's, that's a miracle. You know, what's your secret? And you can tell, tell you what my secret is. It's applying the principles of what the Bible says in loving my wife as Christ loved the church or submitting it unto my husband as unto the Lord. All that come up to you and say, man, you're such a great worker, man. I, I notice, man, you don't complain. You don't gripe about the hours that you have or the boss giving you more work. In fact, even when the boss isn't looking, you're working hard. What's going on? What's your secret? Well, you know, the Bible says, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. And I'm going to do this because I'm a Christian. People need to know why. It's because of Jesus Christ. That's what I do, what I do. That's why I am what I am. I wasn't born this way, but I'm born again. Holding forth the word of life. What a powerful witness it is when we essentially earn the right to preach the gospel by living a godly life. See, God wants us, uh, God wants us to carry to the goal, fully complete our own salvation. In other words, in recognition of what God has done for me, I need to realize that He's placed that gold mine of His grace, a gold mine of His forgiveness in my life, and I need to appropriate all that He's placed in my, my, in my life to discover it, to mine it, to appreciate it, to carry it to the goal when I'm finally home to be with the Lord forever. I also need to be aware of the boulders and the obstacles and the rocks and the, the murmurings and the complaining and the fault finding and the, that, that would hinder me from reaching my goal. And I'm to live blameless, holding forth the word of life to others. Remember the three words. I will do my part. I will do what God has called me to do. I will, number two, depend on God for his strength. Number three, I will be different from the world. Again, that may sound too difficult, but we have to remember what God has said. It's God who both works in you to will and to do of his good pleasure. Remember, the calling of God is the enabling of God. God. If God asks you to do something, then He's going to give you the power to do it. See, Paul could say to his Philippian friends, I know that if you do these things, you will have your focus on Jesus Christ and not me, and I can go home to be with the Lord knowing that your walks are strong in Him. You're standing strong. Finally, look at verses 17 and 18, and we'll close and we'll enter into a time of communion. Paul writes in verse 17, Yes, and if I'm being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and the service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all for the same reason that you also be glad and rejoice with me. Here's one of the most wonderful verses in the entire Word of God. It pictures what the Christian life should truly look like and be. See, Paul is referring to one of the earliest offerings in the Old Testament. When you go back to Genesis chapter 35, 14, you find that Jacob had set up a pillar there in Bethel and he poured a drink offering on that, and he poured oil on that. We know in the book of Leviticus and in the book of Numbers, there are sacrifices that are described there, and we learn that there was this drink offering, which is to be added to the burnt offering and to the meal offering. It was never added to the sin offering or the trespass offering. It was an unusual offering in that it had nothing to do with redemption. 
It had nothing to do with the person of Christ. They would just bring the skin of wine and then just pour it on the sacrifice, which was, which was being consumed by the fire. Now, what would happen to it? Man, it would just go up in steam. It would just disappear. Paul is saying, I want my life to be poured out like a drink offering, an offering to Christ. In other words, I want to disappear. I want to vanish so all you see is Christ. See, Paul knows that the Lord Jesus Christ made the supreme sacrifice. Paul wanted Christ to receive all the honor and all the glory. That's the mind that Paul had. And I can think of no higher wish for the Christian life that that he would increase and that we would decrease. As we live this life, as we do our spiritual workouts, now people aren't seeing me. They're not seeing you. They're seeing Jesus Christ. And they're drawn towards Jesus Christ. And they want what we have, that personal relationship with Jesus Christ. As we enter into a time of communion, we know that Jesus Christ poured out his life for us. That's what communion is all about. In a moment, we're going to pass out the bread and we're going to pass out the, the, the juice and, and we're going to hold on to it and we're going to pray together as a church and then we're going to partake it together. But we're going to look back at what Jesus Christ has done for us and remember how Jesus freely poured out his life as an offering for us. He paid our ransom. He paid that debt that we can never repay. He gave his life for us. That's why communion is for believers to look back and see what he's done for us in honor and recognition to give Him glory, to give Him praise. So if you're not a believer, it's really hypocritical to partake in communion without having that relationship with Him. And so if you're here this morning and you don't have a relationship with Him, I encourage you, I pray that you commit your life to Him this morning and partake communion with us. But as believers, again, you know, we're seeing that Jesus poured out for us so we might pour our lives for Him. Maybe there's some things in your life this morning that God has touched on. Maybe there's some murmuring. Maybe there's some complaining. Maybe there's some fault finding. Maybe there's some attitudes. Maybe there's some judging that's going on. As we come to the table, we need to pour that out before the Lord. Ask Him for forgiveness. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. We need to get right with the Lord in our lives. You know, when when you start to work out and you really want to get in shape, you stop eating the potato chips and the, and the donuts and then you should anyway, you know. You get rid of the stuff that's bad for you and you start taking the stuff that's good for you, Ian. In the same way, as, as we come to the Lord, as we go in the Lord, man, we want to get rid of the stuff that's bad for us. Confess it and take the stuff that's good for us. God's Word, man, is it, nothing like it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity now that we have to come to this place of communion, the communion table. Lord, it, it's the opportunity that we can look back as a church to see and remember all that Christ has done for us. He poured out His life for us because He's the only one that could. He lived a sinless, perfect life. Never once did He uh, fall. Never once did He stumble, Lord, in sin. But He lived perfectly. Why? Because He could take our place. Because we could not live perfectly. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. But thanks be to God that we have a Savior, Jesus Christ, who now because of the cross, His death and resurrection, we're we're made new, we're born again. We've been set free. And Lord, I pray right now that as we prepare our hearts for communion, Lord, if there's anything in there that that needs to be gone, Lord, if there is that that attitude of, of 
complaining or murmuring or maybe complacency, Lord. We just haven't really been doing what you've called us to do. We haven't been working out, so to speak. We haven't been in your word. We haven't been praying. Lord, that too is, is, is a sin, Lord. Prayerlessness, I believe, is a sin. So we want to confess to you those areas, Lord. We want to get rid of those areas as we come to the table, knowing, Lord God, that you forgive us, you cleanse us, you wash us clean. Thank you for that, Lord. Thank you for this time. We commit it to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.